everyone, and welcome to Future of Health, where we talk about the latest technology that's happening in the medical field today. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and I'm here today with Dr. Rom Leidner, the Doctor of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Providence in Oregon. We're answering your question about coronavirus and the latest clinical trials for a vaccine. Remember everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners on social media, and we can be found on Twitter and Facebook under Providence. Use the hashtag Future of Health for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Before I start, I want to remind our listeners that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. This is a special episode of Future of Health because we've had such an overwhelming amount of questions coming in about coronavirus, the clinical trials, and a vaccine. So I want to thank Dr. Leiner for making time so quickly to leave the lab and come join us to talk with you. Dr. Leiner, thank you for joining the show. Can you tell us just a little bit about your role with Providence? Uh, I'm a, a medical oncologist, uh, a cancer doctor. I focus on head and neck cancer. Wonderful. And how long have you been with Providence? Eight years. Okay, okay. Great. Well, we know that the Cancer Institute of Providence has become uh, involved in clinical trials for the vaccine for COVID-19, and we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about it. So, um, I suppose that there was a, there was a key moment uh, where, through a chance conversation, um, Dr. Bernard Fox, who has been here since the the institute that we're both members of, the Early Child's Research Institute, um, for about 25 years uh, since, it, since its founding. A key conversation he had with a former trainee who's now um, the chief scientific officer at, at a biotech in San Diego called Oncosec, um, about some cancer research they were doing. And at the end of the conversation, um, just by chance, they said, you know, we should take what we've been doing for decades now, uh, working on cancer vaccines. And uh, could, we, could we make a contribution in, in the effort against the, the coronavirus pandemic? Um, and in that, in that spark, it was, it was, it was obvious. Uh, and we, we all, uh, as, as an institute, had, had a, a, an urgent meeting and said, we can stand on the sidelines and say, this is not cancer, we focus on cancer or we can um, answer the call to duty. The answer was obvious. Uh, we all want to do what we can. And um, within hours, there was a, a coming together of a, a broad team of scientists, uh, clinical researchers like me, um, regulatory staff to put together what's called an FDA IND. Uh, that is a, a large, uh, submission uh, where you propose to do a vaccine trial and a lot of it is a lot of uh, engineering and specifications about the manufacturing process how it is you intend to make something and then the protocol for actually doing the phase one as we call it the first trial in in healthy adult volunteers um, to, to make sure it's safe um, that process typically takes months, uh, and we accomplish that in about 12 days, with everybody dropping everything, focusing uh, all of their time uh, devoted to this effort, uh, in including a lot of administrative support uh, to, to get this document uh, submitted. Um, and it was like this startup atmosphere, you know, that you hear about with 100-hour work weeks and not sleeping and all of that just to, to get it done. Uh, so that was uh, that was amazing to behold and be a part of. 
Um, one of the, my piece of it is, is the, um, the, the actual research trial protocol design and approval through the Institutional Review Board, as we call it, IRB. Um, and so my, my, my part, part of it was the protocol writing. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm one piece of it, but um, it's, it's just been very inspiring to be a part of that. How, you mentioned it's a pretty broad team. How, how big is the team? Uh, so I don't actually know how many people, if I, I'm sure I would underestimate if I even, uh, I guess I would guess it's about 50 different folks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. And you mentioned that we're going to be um, doing the testing on volunteers. Is that patients and caregivers? Is it a combination? So um, in, in vaccine development, um, as I said, the first part is to do a phase one study. Uh, and typically, um, you would have an idea. We'll talk about that. Uh, you would find funding to, to to pay for the development. Then you would uh, submit your application to the FDA to say, we want to try this in humans and we want to make sure it's safe in a phase one setting. Once you have the FDA review, which usually takes about 30 days for what's called the uh, IND, uh, you would then start the manufacturing process. You would manufacture a small batch of this and then you would test it in, in volunteers who are healthy. That's typically in, in conventional vaccine studies, um, folks that are 18 to 50 years old. You want younger folks who have a more robust immune system because you're hoping at the same time you show it's safe uh, to see that, that you get some kind of the immune response that you're expecting to get. Uh, so you're, you're looking at that. You don't have enough people to really scientifically say, we got it. But if you don't see anything, you may have second thoughts about going to the next phase. All of these steps are done in series. That is, you know, you do one step, make sure you got what you need, go to the next step. Uh, that's not what we've done here. We're in extraordinary times and uh, given this crisis, uh, and by the way, the um, development of the application to the FDA usually takes months, as I said. Uh, we made a conscious decision that, you know, business as usual was not appropriate. Uh, we have started the manufacturing process in parallel so that the minute we have a green light from the FDA, we're not delayed waiting for weeks and weeks to actually make enough to uh, start the trial. Uh, the initial trial is usually about 36, 45 patients. We're, we're, we're proposing 36 patients. But I think what's interesting uh, is that we made a second conscious decision, and that was not to restrict it to people under 50. As we all know okay. with the coronavirus, uh, the folks we're most worried about and the folks that have the overwhelming majority of the, the morbidity and the mortality, the fatalities from this virus are over 50 years old. So we want to learn about folks that are over 50 at the same time, and what we're proposing to do is have 18 folks that are younger than 50 and 18 folks that are over 50. Um, one of the requirements to do this is that you haven't been exposed to the coronavirus already and it's done okay. on a volunteer basis and you have okay. to be otherwise a healthy individual and uh, folks that participate in these trials uh, do so on a volunteer basis. Uh, at this point, I'm aware of two other vaccine trials that have already started in the United States, one in Seattle, one this week in Philadelphia. 
Uh, in Seattle, uh, it's an RNA vaccine. Uh, in Philadelphia, it's a DNA vaccine, similar to the vaccine that we're proposing that we'll talk about. Uh, and I'm certain they've had no shortage of volunteers. Everybody in this moment wants to step up and do whatever they can to contribute to the effort to fight the, the pandemic. On our side of it, we feel like uh, all the years, decades of training and, and our careers have led up to this moment uh, to, to do what we, whatever we can. It's true, it's a very unprecedented time. I mean, we're, in, in so different from normal. I mean, you're actually having people come in from retirement on a nursing staff to help care for patients. Everybody wants to do everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, talk to us. You just mentioned a couple of different types of vaccines that other people are testing. What is the vaccine that you're testing and how is it different from this? You mentioned DNA, you mentioned other options. So um, the the platform that we're we're developing in partnership with uh, the, Banco, the biotech I mentioned, Oncosec, uh, is a DNA-based vaccine. Uh, typically, um, when you generate uh, a vaccine uh, against uh, a virus or a bacteria, uh, you're just using uh, some of the proteins or a, a dead virus or deactivated virus and injecting that. Um, we think the next generation of vaccines are going to be DNA and RNA based. Um, and we've been doing that with cancer vaccine research for decades. And, and that's one of the uh, approaches we thought we could contribute to this effort, uh, pivoting from what we do in cancer and trying to apply it uh, to viral vaccine development. Um, the target across the vaccine development uh, effort right now um, worldwide, I think, is the uh, spike uh, glycoprotein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. If you look at the photos that you can see online or the pictures, I guess, uh, of the virus, you see it's decorated with all these little red spikes. Uh, the, that is the spike protein. That's the part that's sitting on the outside. That's what the immune system can see when the virus first gets in and before it's entered your cells. It uses that spike protein to latch on to the outside of your cells and, and kind of you know, insert itself into your cells, and then it's then it's much more difficult for the immune system to see. So that's the key target, and that's based on work that's been done at the NIH, uh, Dr. Barney Graham at the NIAID, uh, starting with SARS and MERS, and now the COVID-2 virus. Uh, that that is the target, um, and so we are using. Uh, Within days of the sequence coming from China, the, the sequence of that spike protein, the DNA that makes that spike protein was available. Uh, and we've taken that DNA, so that's not the virus, that's just that one piece of it, and use that for part of the vaccine. We have a separate piece of DNA that makes a cytokine called interleukin-12. Um, that cytokine is a a supercharging factor for the immune system. It tells the immune system, hey, there's a problem. This is the spot. Uh, it sends out an APB and says, get going. And we inject a mix of those two together uh, in, as you normally do a vaccine. And we're hoping to uh, then present to the immune system this avatar of the virus. You know, the, the virus is decorated with these red spike proteins. We're, we're putting those up. Uh, to say, here's a decoy, and then we're giving the immune system a, a stimulus to say, act like you had an infection, you're not infected, there's no virus, but act like that, copy this DNA, 
and present it to the immune system and deploy the forces, uh, the antibodies, there are cells in the immune system that are used to fight off viruses. They, they, they seek out uh, your, your own cells that have a virus. So get all of that in place and get ready because if you do see the real virus, then you've already, you're already prepared for it. You know what to do. You know how to recognize that surface uh, decoration and neutralize it and hopefully stop it even before it enters your cells or take out any cells that did get infected. Uh, so, so that's the whole premise of, of the vaccine. The beauty of, of DNA or RNA-based vaccines is that you don't have to reinvent the manufacturing process to switch out the target. So as we go along, if we learn there's a better target, we take out that piece of DNA and put in a different piece of DNA. We call it a cassette, and those are easily swappable uh, with, with in, in a very short time. And so um, that sort of deafness or nimbleness is, is, is why we see this next generation of vaccines as, as being um, the, the future and we want to have it today, uh, especially if we see a rebound or seasonal cycling uh, with the coronavirus. I love the way you describe it. It's very much like a Marvel comic book movie, the way that it attacks itself. Right. But it's interesting that you said that because one of the questions we had for one of our other doctors recently was, is this virus mutating like the flu does? So if you're working on a vaccine, is it, my, is it, is it changing as, as you guys are working on a current vaccine? So I, I don't think we fully know at this point. I mean, that's one of the points about being able to have swappable cassettes for your targets, right? If it changes confirmation, uh, we can, we can, we can respond uh, just as quickly without reinventing an entire manufacturing. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the clinical trials for coronavirus. I just want to shine, like the sun when it comes up, run the city from the rooftops, cause today's going to be my day, it's going to be my day,
And today we're joined by our guest, Dr. Ron Leiner, and we're talking about coronavirus and the latest clinical trials on vaccines. I think when we talk about vaccines, people know a lot about like the flu vaccine. Is this vaccine very different from that? I mean, you just talked a lot about kind of the different types of it, but it, is it similar to a flu vaccine? Uh, so the flu vaccine is protein-based. It's not DNA or RNA-based. And we're not adding the adjuvant, which is that interleukin-12 I talked about, that, that supercharging cytokine. We don't do that with the flu vaccine. And, and I will add, you know, we know from cancer vaccine studies where we do have to add extra things to the vaccine to really charge an immune response. We expect some inflammation where we inject this, you know, more than a typical vaccine. In cancer, as opposed to uh, trying to get the immune system to see uh, an infection with a virus or a bacteria, in cancer, we're, we're trying to get the immune system to look at the cancer cells and say, you're slightly different than, than the rest of my cells. But the cancer cells are your own cells originally. They've just started to change a bit and they're growing out of control. And so we know that the immune system can recognize those differences, but it takes a lot more to get the immune system to reject those and attack the cancer. And so cancer vaccine development has, in addition to trying to get antibodies against the cancer, is always focused on getting the, the immune cells. Uh, there are white blood cells that, that are part of the immune response, trying to get that what we call cellular response to go after the cancer as well. Those are cells that travel around in your blood. They can enter different parts of your body and, and, and engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat, if you will, with the cancer cells. That's always been the goal of cancer vaccine development. We think that's gonna be very important with the coronavirus uh, in addition to getting the antibodies you need. So um, that's, that's what I alluded to when I said we're taking some of the things we've been doing in cancer and, and redeploying that towards this um, in, in, in a rapid deployment. So that's another piece that we felt we had to contribute. We in cancer are very used to running um, clinical research trials rapidly. As something new is discovered, everybody adopts it. But what I spend all my time doing is trying to figure out how to get uh, research trials going to patients with cancer that have no options left. And I don't have time to wait, uh, you know, a year to develop a trial and things like that. So. We have an entire infrastructure in place already with uh, uh, research trial staff, and regulatory staff, scientists uh, working at the bench, and we're embedded in a hospital where we see the patients, where the operating rooms are, where the wards are, and we all eat in the same break area, and there's a lot of cross-pollination happening, happening, and all of that is designed by design uh, to make it uh, as, as efficient as possible to take a discovery in the lab and get it to the bedside in the hospital. It, in, in as rapid a fashion as you can. 
I will say in this extraordinary circumstance, we broke all of our own records as far as, as getting this in. So um, it's, it's been, it's been uh, really an inspiring thing to see. It's amazing that you can do that. And I, first of all, I have to thank you for explaining this in layman's terms, because it's, it's a complicated topic, but you're doing great. Um, you talked about kind of the rapid succession of how you're doing this. Do we have any estimation in your time as to when we actually would have a working vaccine? So the, uh, my co-lead investigator for this research effort is Dr. Bernard Fox, uh, as I think I mentioned. Um, he's more optimistic and I'm more cautious, I would say, about when the date is that we're going to have the first patient started getting this treatment. Um, I think we're both hoping it will be in May, maybe in first week of June, or he might say earlier in May. Uh, that's, our, that's our target timeline. Um, and we will be among the first doing the, the vaccine studies um, that are open. Um, the, uh, the work we're doing, one of the reasons we're able to move so quickly is it's all supported by philanthropy. So um, about 26 years ago, Dr. Walter Erba and Dr. Fox came from the NIH and founded this institute. And it's always been supported by philanthropy. And that's meant that we didn't have to wait to arrange funding before we started doing all the other steps I described to get a trial going. The, the, the core group of donors that have always supported us in cancer research, uh, have faith and trust and, and have given us opportunities to do what needs to be done uh, and do it as rapidly as possible. Um, and we will certainly be seeking support as we move along, but we didn't have to hesitate to, to start this process. And that's been a key part of this. Uh, I can't stress how much philanthropy is um, a key element. I feel like you saw my interview questions because that was my next question, which is great. <laughs> And we'll tell people later on in the show too, but you can go to coronavirus.providence.org and donate if you want to help um, help this process along. Um, you talked a little bit about the approval process for the vaccine, and, and I assume because you guys are doing it expedited, are, are the people who are quote-unquote approving the vaccine, are they prepared for this as soon as you're ready to submit for approval? Uh, so we've, we've submitted to approval. It's, it's with the FDA. We're waiting for their review process um, and the green light to go ahead. That's, that's usually um, about a 30-day process. Um, the manufacturing part is, is going in parallel. So there's a lot of um, um, QA, QC work you need to do on the, uh, the manufacturing part of it uh, that we've already started doing. I guess the best analogy I have for making enough vaccine to do a 36 patient phase one trial would be, it's sort of like brewing a batch of homebrew, which Portland is famous for in Oregon. Uh, but, uh, you know. <laughs> That's our jam. <laughs> we, we, we have to test all the ingredients and, and ensure sterility, right? We have to make sure there's no contamination. Everything is done in clean rooms. Uh, we have to test all the equipment. We have to do test batches to make sure the process works and is, is um, that we model it to, to show it's safe. So all of that is happening now so that we're prepared uh, to go. How big of a difference do you think having a vaccine will make as we start looking at trying to diminish the numbers? So if if we see uh, seasonal cycling or a, a, a latency period and then a rebound of the coronavirus, having the vaccine ready is gonna be critical, right? If we don't want to go through this all over again, what, we, what, we, what we're in the midst of going through right now. And the only, uh, 
The only remedy for that scenario is, is having a vaccine. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the clinical trials for coronavirus. And today we're joined by our guest, Dr. Ron Leiner, and we're talking about coronavirus and the latest clinical trials on vaccines. Is there anything early on in your studies that you, and, and I know you referenced that you're really taking what you've learned in cancer over the years, but is there anything that you would share about your learnings to date that people maybe haven't already heard from you? Um, it's such a complex topic for our listeners. I think they want to know so much about it, but when, I mean, what you guys do is so in-depth and it takes so much experience. 
Um, I guess maybe maybe a better way of phrasing it would be, you know, what what is the one thing people need to know about the fact that you guys have escalated this and you've done it? Is it that when it when it hits the market, it's going to be new and we're going to have to figure out how to distribute it? What what do you think the bigger concern will be for consumers as it relates to vaccine? Uh, yeah, so our our you know I, I mentioned that philanthropy has made it possible for us to to move like a speedboat and and, and execute on this. Um, and and our uh, our approach really has been that if we build it, they will come in terms of additional funding that we'll need. So there's been talk about um, at the national level about, well, the typical vaccine process takes 12 to 18 months. How can we accelerate that? And one of the ideas is to provide the guaranteed funding in advance to start making enough for the, the larger trials, the phase two and phase three trials where you stop asking whether it's safe because you did that in phase one and in phase two you say does it work phase three you, you ask does it work better than a placebo and so you have to make you have to have a lot more volunteers for those trials a lot more participants so you have to make a lot more vaccine and that that gets into the the you know large figures in terms of, of support uh, funding to do that and you know guaranteeing that funding so I think that will be there and I, I as I said we've we've um, Taking the approach that if we have if we build it, the the funding will will materialize. Um, I think what we're all concerned about is um, will we have a vaccine that's effective? Uh, will um, what will be the best vaccine? Um, I think initially we we had concerns that uh, you know will we hedge our bets in one one approach? But I think there's so much uh, activity going on right now in terms of different um, groups trying different vaccines that, that we will have options and, and data to compare and say which, which, which approach is the most effective. I don't think deployment will be an issue. Um, I can cite as a real world example, uh, two days ago, uh, we launched a um, zero surveillance product pro pro protocol for uh, antibody testing for healthy asymptomatic healthcare workers in the Providence uh, system. Uh, and by word of, and so that had to do with, with just getting a blood test and uh, testing people once every two weeks over the next two month period. Uh, and that's the surveillance part of it. We don't mean surveillance like tapping your phones. We use that term medically to mean <laughs> over time checking again and again. Uh, we've made that available in a voluntary, confidential, free manner for healthcare workers or anybody that comes in contact with bio, with specimens from patients or linens or you know people that work in the clinic or hospital. Um, and uh, by word of mouth only, we uh, were able to to test uh, nearly 1,200 patients in 48 hours. No, I'm sorry, participants, healthcare workers in 48 hours. Um, and we've announced that um, it's something that's going to be available throughout uh, Providence sites and the, the support has been amazing. So my whole point in that was that uh, the, the, um, the enthusiasm and the ability to execute has been unparalleled. That's an effort that from the first realization that we had the capability to test uh, hundreds and hundreds of blood samples a day for the antibody, which means, by the way, that you've been exposed to the coronavirus in the past. It's not that you're sick now. Uh, sick now is the swab test that's a, a PCR-based test. Um, 
So this is for folks that are at the front line, healthcare workers that are at risk of being exposed and nobody knows, did I, did I get exposed, didn't I? Uh, and um, when, when we realized we had the capability to do that, we said, we've got to do this and where should we test it? The answer was obvious uh, for, for healthcare workers. Uh, it took us one week to get that together and that was an incredible undertaking. Again, marshalling, everybody dropped what they're doing, a massive team of people uh, and, um, you know, the focus that was there round the clock to, to consider all the things we needed to do, writing a study, IRB approval, logistics, how do you notify people in a secure, encrypted fashion of their results? How do you actually get enough staff to, to do all of this, right. roll it out? Um, and then employee-employer considerations that involve mm -hmm. groups of people that I wouldn't normally work with as a cancer researcher. Everybody came together, support at the top levels, of the healthcare system. And as far as I know, we're amongst or the first to, to roll this out nationally, even though it's fairly obvious and, and all you have to do is listen to the news this week that we need antibody testing. Okay. Um, and so uh, we got that together in one week uh, from the time we got the idea to actually starting to test uh, folks in the hospital, that the workers um, took one week. So um, the the deployment ability that we have is, is unmatched as far as I can tell. For those of us who don't really understand, and I'm one of them, the antibody testing that you're doing, is that because if somebody had it and they made it through, you, you want to understand how their body reacted to it, or you're, you're doing that because you want to test these healthy people, but you want to make sure through the course of the time that they stay healthy? We don't know the prevalence, the proportion, the number of people, if you took 100 healthcare workers, how, how many of them were exposed, right? Um, nobody knows that number. Uh, we know it from Italy right now how many people got sick that were doctors and nurses and so forth. And that was with the swab test, the PCR-based test, right? But as we know, there are people that, that get get the coronavirus and don't get many symptoms or actually don't get any symptoms. And their immune system um, has a memory of that and that's what we're testing for in the antibody. So we're not testing to see in your blood if you have the virus, that's the swab test. We're testing to see, did your immune system ever see this virus? And if, you, if it did, we don't know when that happened, but we know you got through it and you mounted a good immune response, we think, and you, you did well because you, you are healthy. Um, so th the first key question we're asking is how much, how many people have been exposed? We don't even know that basic information. And that trial is going to be incredibly helpful to us in working on the right vaccine for this virus. Uh, because there will be some percentage of the healthcare workers that will have the antibody, right? That means that they had an effective, and these are the healthy healthcare workers. These are not the people that have symptoms. That means that their body saw the virus, they got infected in quotes, then their immune system uh, responded in a very effective way, so much so they didn't get sick and it, and it was an effective immune response. That's what we want to learn about. Uh, to test for the antibody in that tube of blood, we need very little of it actually. And the rest of it would normally just be discarded. Uh, but in this trial, we have two key elements. One is the ability to deploy any of the newest technologies as far as the different tests that are coming online every week so that we're not locked into one test if a better one shows up next week. 
But number two, we have the ability to take that blood sample that would normally just be discarded and use in the folks that have the antibody, we can start uh, investigating in the lab, what did their immune system do? Uh, what, what are the, what are the you know, the breadcrumbs as far as how their immune system responded when they did get exposed. Uh, and not just the antibodies, but the immune cells, different subtypes of the white blood cells. How does, what, how, what does it look like when the immune system has been affected? And that is going to be, those are going to be the key questions that help us know what kind of vaccine would be best suited to get an immune response like that. And we may learn that that's different than what we would normally think for the flu virus or another virus mm -hmm. and so on. So that pipeline of, of samples that we'll be able to take a deep dive on with, with the research immunologists in the lab uh, will feed forward into the vaccine uh, studies that we're doing. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the clinical trials for coronavirus. Another story, something to get off my chest. My life gets kind of boring. Need something that I can confess. Till on my sleeves I stained red from all the truth that I've said. Come by it honestly, I swear. Thought you saw me wink, no, I've been on the brink. So tell me what you want to hear.
back on Talk with the Doc, and today we're joined by our guest, Dr. Ron Leiner, and we're talking about coronavirus and the latest clinical trials on vaccines. I could ask you a million questions. I know you don't have time. I'm going to try to try to end them soon, but um, there are so many people who may have been exposed and don't know they're exposed. So when a vaccine does exist, will people be able to get it, or will they have to do a, an antibody test before they get a vaccine? How will that work? So one of the requirements for the first phase one study with 36 patients is that you have not been exposed, right? And so we will be testing you if you, we've already got people um, calling in saying, I want to volunteer. We, we will have no shortage of, of folks that want to contribute. I'm in, count me in. Yeah. Uh, so the first test is, um, have you ever been exposed to the virus? If you have and you're, you're healthy now, that means you got through it, right? Uh, and vaccinating you is not going to teach us anything. Your, your immune system already got vaccinated in a sense, right? Got and, it. Uh, so we need to find people that have not been exposed and see if our vaccine generates the immune response that we think is, a, is a, an effective immune response from the folks that we'll identify that have been exposed and cleared it with their own immune system, right? Makes sense, makes sense. Well, I'm sure you've been very busy in the lab and you haven't seen it, but there are hundreds of people that are sending thank you messages via our website to you and all of the wonderful people doing this because they oh, are so great. appreciative of the work. So we want to make sure- that, Some of that has trickled in through social media. Thank Keep you. it coming. It's really uplifting. And it, to me, it's been incredibly uplifting as well. Um, in the first few days when we started saying, we're gonna give you free voluntary confidential antibody testing, the common refrain from the place where folks were registering to going and getting their blood drawn and then doing, you know, and exiting was thank you for doing this. The, the morale boost for the staff in the hospital has been a joy to behold. Um, and I'm normally a shy person and I don't like doing interviews. I'm just a reclusive, uh, country uh, oncologist, cancer doctor, but um, in one, after one of these interviews, um, the next day, I didn't know when it was coming out. Uh, I got flooded by patient uh, contacts um, in the clinic from home saying, you know, that's my doctor. And I knew he was a good doctor and now he's on, you know, we can see him. And uh, I thought, boy, I will do anything for my patients. And if it makes them proud to see me, I'll put myself out there, right? That's, uh, that, that has been really uplifting as well. So the, the whole esprit de corps is, is, is phenomenal um, from every angle. It is beautiful. And we are so and proud of you. And you're doing your part. You're doing your part as well by helping us uh, let people know what, what's going, what we're doing. Um, Sometimes education is all we can do. You know, we can't get in the, the lab and make the changes. We can't be the frontline staff. So we're, we all are doing our part for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to connect with us and for helping to educate on the, the clinical trials around coronavirus. Um, we will probably tap back into you soon. I appreciate your time. Can I mention one other effort we're working on? Oh, please. Yes, please. Um, so have you heard about the, the plasma treatment? It's called convalescent plasma or serum exchange. Oh, okay, do tell. So um, it's an idea that's over 100 years old. It's kind of at the one of the foundational uh, discoveries that led to the field of immunology. But you can take a serum from somebody that's, that's recovered, what we call convalescent, uh, and it's actually plasma, not serum, but uh, it's part of the blood. You can take that from somebody that's healed um, and give it to somebody that's sick, and it will help them recover faster. 
Um, and so we're transferring the immunity that, that somebody that's, that's recovered has developed and giving it to somebody that's sick right now. So that's called convalescent plasma therapy. Um, but of course, you have to know who's seen the virus and who's, right. been, who's been exposed and who's recovered and has an immune response against it and got through it well. Uh, and you're never going to know who those people are because they feel fine. Uh, so the zero surveillance study that we're doing to check folks is going to also identify folks to us that could be candidates to go, you know, to the blood bank and donate some blood that we could use then to use, to make the plasma and treat the patients that are sick in the hospital. So all of these things are, are intertwined and one just leads to the next. Um, so it's the synergy is uh, also another remarkable facet of all of this. So I think that's an interesting question too, is you guys have typically been doing a lot of cancer research and you've shifted focus to this. And I know not everybody has shifted focus to this, but a, a group of people, are they parallel pathing? I mean, are the learnings that you're having for this going to, to resonate on the cancer side or are you really just taking a, a group of people and kind of shifting their focus for a moment in time? Uh, it, it will absolutely resonate. I, I think that the one clear, easy to explain example is, is the vaccine development. So um, we are going to answer a lot of scientific questions along the way of, of making a DNA vaccine um, in, in, in a way that would be much faster than we normally could in cancer. If you just think about the number of people that will, will need to get this vaccine compared to the number of folks that normally have cancer, it, you know, it's, it's an order of magnitude or more difference. And so in science, um, to ask if you have a hypothesis and you, that, that is a question and you want to test it, uh, you have to have what's called statistical power. You have to have enough uh, um, enough numbers to say, okay, is there a difference between X and Y, right? And sometimes that's, you know, 10 and versus 10, and sometimes it's thousands versus thousands. And so um, for us, that's, we're going to get the information we would have gotten in years in, in a much, much faster, shorter time frame. Uh, and it's going to apply, it's going to feed back. We took it from cancer to infection, and now it's going to feed back to cancer. Uh, also, the, we're using the latest uh, equipment to make this DNA, we call it a plasmid, and to figure out how to, to deliver it to, by delivery we mean injection, how to get it in the body and, and how to present, how to have the immune system see it. Uh, and what we learn there will also be able be directly applicable to the way we try to get the immune system to fight cancer, right? And the, the revolution in the last decade in cancer treatment that's only picking up pace every year is immunotherapy using getting your own immune system trained to fight the cancer instead of chemo instead of putting in chemotherapy and things like that uh, so yeah th these definitely are uh, efforts that that synergize when you started talking about the plasma it reminded me of another talk with the doc we did about our own kind of plasma rich platelets where they were taking our own blood right. running it through centrifuge back it's not right. that far off no, 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 not at all. You just mentioned the injection, though. I know that there's some vaccines can be inhaled or nasal, some are injectable. Everything you're working on for coronavirus would be injection? Uh, 
right now that's you know injection but no we are actively looking at, at nasal and and okay you know the the virus enters your body through the mucosa in the the face area but basically mm -hmm. the nose and the mouth right and why not deliver a vaccine there as well that just makes a lot of sense makes perfect sense I, last question i swear you kind of touched on it earlier but there's a couple of people going through this trying to get to uh, the finish line and get us an, a working vaccine is it likely that we'll get out there with one and then maybe another one comes along that is slightly better and we would shift or is is it first to market or is it just the best as we get through it i, I think it's absolutely likely i mean if you look at the development of the hpv the human papillomavirus mm -hmm. vaccines we've had several different ones that kind of one came and then the next and the next so that's that's um there's there's certainly a precedent for that and that's Wonderful. good for everyone right that yep we're not locked into just one approach. Uh, and the best, best vaccine will be the one that's, that's hopefully most widely available. That's amazing. I actually hope that you and I are having a conversation in May or June and saying right. how great the vaccine was. And then I'm thinking December, I come back to you and you've told me you've cured cancer. Yes? <laughs> Check. <laughs> Wishful thinking. We'll just go with that. Any, any final thoughts you have for our listeners? Um, stay tuned. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. We will definitely be reaching back out to you. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. I look forward. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Leidner, for joining us today and to helping provide information on updates on the latest clinical trials concerning coronavirus and the vaccine. Make sure to follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to learn more about our mission programs and services. If you want more information about COVID-19, please visit coronavirus.providence.org. You know, there's many mental health concerns out there as, as the virus continues to spread and you may be having some hard times dealing with it. We've created a wellness site to help you and to help you find resources as you need them. The site where you can find that curated content for physical, mental, and overall wellness is coronavirus.providence.org. Please take care. Mm -hmm.